and welcome to episode 1379 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Sam Miller of ESPN. Hello, Sam. Hi, Ben. How's it going? Can I take a little victory lap at the expense of someone else's pain? <laughs> so I was talking to Michael Bauman on The Ringer MLB show yesterday, and we were talking about Robinson Cano who's come under fire for his most recent lack of hustle. And I had a stirring defense of Robinson Cano, and I went back to my old article from the BP days that I'm sure we've talked about on this podcast about uh, Robinson Cano's hustle and whether he actually cost his team anything and whether it makes sense in the long run for him not to hustle because it preserves his health and maybe has contributed to his durability. So I made my case. I suggested that Robinson Cano has been better off, has been more valuable to himself and his teams over the long haul just because he doesn't bust it on every ground ball to first. Just to recap that research I did, which was pre-StatCast, but I estimated based on where he hits the ball, basically, and comparing to other left-handed hitters, that he costs himself like four singles a year or something, infield hits a year. That is worth a certain amount of runs, but not as many runs as it would cost him to miss even like a week during one of his good seasons because he's a Hall of Fame caliber player. And the only two times he's been on the injured list in his career, except for when he got hit by a pitch, is running out balls and rounding first and running hard to second. And he strained a a quad one time and a hamstring one time. So he did that once in 2006 and then not again. He was not injured seriously again until 2017 when it happened again. So I suggested that he's actually maximizing his value. And today, the very day after we had that long conversation, he ran hard to first and he has pulled a hamstring and uh, he had to be removed from the game. And it sounds like something that could possibly cost him some time. So I feel vindicated. I'm sorry that it had to come at Robinson Cano's expense. And I hope that he didn't cave to all of the hustle shaming and the pressure that was put on him. I almost hope he's faking. He's he's faking this injury just to teach a lesson to everyone that this is what happens when he hustles. I wonder if Robinson Cano knows that he is basically a video game character in a game that you are playing for pride. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) That's basically it right now. (laughs) I'm gloating that Robinson Cano has hurt himself because it makes me look smart. You know, the other thing about Cano that I don't know if you got into in your article, but for a lefty, he hits into a lot of double plays. And uh, so you'd have to include that in your math. Yeah, but it's uh, so many, I mean, the two plays that people got mad at him about recently, he had reasons for both of them. I won't say they were good reasons, but the first one he thought was foul, so he didn't run. And then the other one, he said that the the scoreboard in Marlins Park said there were two outs, so he didn't run, which isn't a great excuse because it basically just is uh, admitting to not knowing how many outs there are. But those were his reasons. But on both of those plays, if he had been busting it out of the box, he wouldn't have beaten out those hits. And that's what it comes down to so many times is that even if you run really hard, you're usually not going to beat it out. Even if you do beat it out, it's usually not going to make a difference in the game. Even if it does make a difference in the game, it's usually not going to make a difference in the season. So I'm not saying never run hard. There are times when it's worth the risk. But in the long run, I think his durability speaks for itself. And he's had a Hall of Fame career. And uh, I don't think he would have been any more valuable had he run hard. So I hope that when he comes back off the injured list or off however much time he misses, he goes back to his old ways. Although the way he's hitting this season, I'm sure that Mets fans wouldn't be too sorry to see him take some time off. 
I like Cano. I like a ball player that takes it easy from yeah. time to from time to time. I, I I also like hustle. I I generally like hustle, mm-hmm. but I like a certain sort of uh, gracefulness. And Cano has captured that gracefulness in my opinion. Yes. And if the cost of that is a couple singles, then I'm okay with that for my video game that he's part of. <laughs> Right. I understand why it makes people mad because fans want to win the game and they want their players to look like they really want to win the game just as much as the fans do. It's almost like when a player isn't hustling, it almost makes you feel silly for caring as much as you do because it's like, why, why am I living and dying with every play here when this guy who's actually on the team doesn't seem to care as much as I do sitting at home here? So I think that sort of spoils the illusion that this is really important to everyone at all times. So I get it. And sure, of course, Kano is making lots of money and that just puts more pressure on him and makes people more inclined to be angry if he is not giving 100% effort all the time. But I made this analogy to Michael, but I think it's sort of like the shift where you get mad at the shift when it costs you a hit and you curse the shift and the shift is stupid and why do we do the shift and then you kind of forget about all the times that it saves you a hit and in the long run, at least in theory, that works out in your favor. And it's sort of the same with hustling on every ball down to first base because you can see the times when a guy doesn't beat out the hit, but you can't see the times when he would have hurt himself if he had run all out but didn't. But now Robinson Cano has helpfully provided an illustration of, of what happens in the worst case. I, I'm just going to state my – I I just want to make my position clear on Cano and hustle and everything else. I, uh, I'm pro-hustle. Mm-hmm. I like a guy who plays hard but doesn't look like it. And Cano is, I will admit, that I have not seen every game that Cano has played. I have not seen him the way that Yankees fans have seen him or Mariners fans, and maybe that's where complaints come from. Or like uh, columnists who maybe cover him do. <laughs> but I don't have a mental image of Cano not hustling. I have a mental image of Cano uh, appropriately paced. Yeah. And I, I like that. I mean, there's there's always been guys who get criticized for not looking like they're going as hard as you want them to go. Mm -hmm. But there's not actually any evidence that they're not going as hard as you'd want them to go. Um, there's, it seems like there's always a couple of guys in the league who get knocked for for taking it easy or somehow. But mm-hmm. like it's it's a it's a it's a bad knock. It's not it's not real. It's just that they're they're smooth. They're smooth and graceful, right. and they uh, they know what they're doing. And I tend to like those guys. And in my mind, Cano has always been that guy. Now maybe other people are like, dude, Sam, he is notorious, and <laughs> everybody has a mental image of him like turning and walking to the dugout on a six four three double play or something. I do not have that. I'm pro Cano. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well when I came to Cano's defense, I did not actually make the case that he <laughs> that he hustles all the time because I, I do think there are times when he doesn't and I think he's acknowledged as much and and he has mentioned that he just wants to pace himself and preserve himself. And I think that's a perfectly legitimate excuse. And I know it doesn't fly with a lot of people, but it's also just that the guy's been in the big leagues for 15 years now, and this has kind of been a consistent complaint about him going back to the beginning. So get over it. He's had a whole Hall of Fame career at this point. So if he does cost himself a single every now and then, I think he more than makes up for it, except for this season, which is maybe focusing this intensity pressure on him even more because it's one thing when he's offering a lot of value on other plays, but when he appears to be dogging it at times when he's not hitting, then of course that's going to make people more upset. Mm, Okay. Yeah. 
All right. So I hope no other players have to hurt themselves to prove any points I'm making. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you've been doing this for like 10 years. I hope at some point you just feel like that you've made it. And you don't need players to get hurt in order to feel valuable in this field. Yeah, not there yet. (laughs) You're about to have your second New York Times bestselling book. Oh, let's hope. Let's hope. I don't want to jinx it. You might be a two-timer. (laughs) <laughs> could be if you're listening and you haven't pre-ordered you can help make that happen and you're here yeah and you're here worried about whether robinson cano's hamstrings will hold up <laughs> let's see Any, anything else or can i go yeah i got something I, I was referred to a tweet that was sent on wednesday by max wildstein and this was a tweet maybe it was sent on tuesday and this was uh, about Former first baseman Chris Carter, who I did not know about this, but he has become a Mexican citizen. He became a Mexican citizen in February so that he could play in the Mexican League this year. And Chris Carter, at least when this tweet was sent, is hitting 371, 503, 893 in 39 games in the Mexican League with 21 homers and 48 RBI. He has a 43 to 35 strikeout to walk ratio, which is decidedly not Chris Carter-esque. So this is just a a more recent reminder of how good Major League Baseball players are. Chris Carter could not find a job in the big leagues, even though he had pretty recently won a home run crown, but he was just not that valuable player. And uh, that was that. He was only 30 in his last season with the Yankees, but he was done as a big leaguer. And he didn't hit in his last season. And then he goes to the Mexican League and he is destroying everyone. And uh, he's not hitting at all like what we know Chris Carter to be in the big leagues. And Mexican League is kind of loosely classified as triple A ball, which I, I don't know exactly how accurate that is. But it's a fairly high level league. And Chris Carter is destroying it. Yeah, I'm looking, I'm trying to find the uh, easy answer here. I, the uh, the city that he plays in has an elevation of only 1,900 feet. So this is uh-huh. not a, you know, Mexico City elevation or anything like that. He's only, uh, you know, slightly elevated. The ballpark that he calls home is 325 to left, but 410 to center. So, uh, you know, it's uh, no more egregious than uh, the games he played in Enron or whatever it was called when he was in Houston, <laughs> Minute Maid. And uh, so, yeah, he just looks like he's just hitting. I think yep. I had him in the minor league draft last year. Oh. Huh, maybe maybe okay. two years ago. Maybe yeah. maybe seven years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Could have been sometime. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. You can go. All right. Let's see. This one, I'll get it out of the way because it's not at all interesting, but Ryan Firabend mm-hmm. threw a complete game the other day. Did you Did you see anything about his complete game? I didn't really. I I just know that he threw the knuckleball. Okay, so he threw a complete game, but he was on the losing end of a rain-shortened game, and so he uh, Mm. got a complete game for throwing four innings. Four (laughs) innings. Not even five. He threw four innings. (laughs) And uh, this is rarer than I realized. I I knew this was obviously this was possible, but this is only the 11th time in the live ball era that a player has thrown a four-inning complete game. It's only the second one this century and only the third one of my lifetime. And arguably, uh, you could make the case that that Firabend had the worst complete game or the least accomplished complete game in almost a century because of the other 10 in the live ball era, 
the pa- the nine before him were all better performances. Now, the the first one of these in the live ball era was uh, in 1923, and that guy gave up five runs. Firaben gave up four, but uh, he had a game score of 33. He had four innings, four runs, seven hits, one walk, two strikeouts. Uh, and the nice thing is, I don't know, maybe he's maybe he's starting right now. Maybe he's starting tomorrow. I haven't checked that. But that's his only appearance in the majors this year. So he could have, theoretically, he could have the ultra-rare season line of four innings pitched, one one start, one complete game, uh, which <laughs> would be you know, somewhat worth, I don't know, something about. First game he's pitched in five years, went the distance. Yeah. Which <laughs> reminds was... <laughs> me, wasn't my thing, wasn't my whole thing about Babe Ruth couldn't possibly be real because he randomly pitched a game after six years of not pitching and, and went the distance <laughs> through yeah. a complete game? Well, Fearben <laughs> did that too. Yeah, Ryan Fearbend, he hasn't been in the big league since 2014. He was pitching in the KBO, and he comes back as a, a lefty knuckleballer after five years away from the majors, and he pitches a forward and complete game. So, yeah, that uh, that happens all the time. All right, let's see. The other day I saw a guy pop the ball up, f- foul, like kind of in the catcher's area, and, uh, you know, he looked up at it and the catcher looked up at it and the catcher chased after it and caught it. And I thought if he had not, if the batter had not looked at that ball, the catcher would not have seen it and he would not have found it in time to catch it. And I, so I started thinking, should batters not be looking at their pop-ups? Do they need to start deking catchers? And I've been kind of watching for these. I've been watching for pop-ups to see if batters look and batters always look, and I've seen I mean, this happened like over the last four days. So it's not like I've got a robust sample or anything, but they always look, and then the catcher always finds it. And uh, today, though, in like day four or whatever of my search, Jake Bowers, I believe, popped a ball up foul, and uh-huh. he looked the opposite direction, and the catcher just stood there, like also looking in the opposite direction, like. Is someone going to feel that? And then he realized that it was actually a pop-up right over him, and he did not catch it. It dropped before he could correct himself. Now, I don't know if Bowers did this on purpose because it was kind of a weird pop-up. It was sort of a weird swing. It didn't go very high. It was kind of off the knob almost or something. So it might have just been accident. But I'm just bringing it up because uh, you guys came very close probably to getting an article about this four months from now. And instead, (laughs) now you just get to hear that it ended. That story (laughs) resolved. I also have a fun fact that I wanted to run by you. And you can tell me if it's a fun, fun fact. Okay? Okay. You ready? Mm -hmm. There are 20 players in the majors this year who have multiple, multiple home run games, okay? So they've hit two or more home runs in a game two or more times. Sure. 20 of those guys, okay? All right. Four of them had both of their multi-homer games against the Orioles. (laughs) I don't know if it's fun because... The market is flooded with fun facts of that very kind, right? Hasn't, uh, I think, Glaber Torres, yeah, just, well, he just hit his 10th homer of the season against did. The, the Orioles? The follow-up is that only one player in baseball has had four multi-home run games this year, and they've all come against the Orioles. Ah, And okay. that is Glaber Torres. Uh, okay. Yeah, that's pretty fun. They're allowing almost too many homers for any homers. for any fun fact about homers against the Orioles to actually be that fun. In fact, I just saw another one from your pals at ESPN Stats and Info. The Orioles have allowed five-plus home runs in seven games, the most in a season in the history of the American League, and they've done it in their first 49 games. Pretty impressive, but juiced ball plus Orioles pitching. They're going to Coors. They're going to Coors this weekend. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Oh, dear. All right, let me just scroll and make sure. I think that's all I got. Okay. By the way, I just... Fearbend, I... uh, pop-ups, <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the headlines. Catcher, and yeah. is this marginal fun fact kind so, of fun? So we've covered the big news at baseball this week. Oh, I got another one. This oh, one, I, this okay. one I like. This one all I'm right. a little excited to talk about. Okay. Not, not really, but there we've all got ways that we could improve. You know, video reviews, replay mm-hmm. reviews, and I've been thinking a lot about this one, and I feel like this one might be something that we should lobby, that we should get behind. So the other day, a couple a couple days ago, there was a, a pitch that appeared to that appeared to hit Jose Ramirez on the foot. The home plate umpire said, "Go to first. And then the other team came out and argued and said it didn't hit him. And so then they the, the, the umpires co- collaborated and then they said, no, it didn't hit you. Go back to the plate. And then Terry Francona came out and he's like, well, now I have to use a review because it hit him. And so he asked for a review. And one angle seemed to show that it probably didn't. And then another angle seemed to show that it probably did. And so this would be what is known as inconclusive. And so because the play on the field got the, the call on the field got changed, the burden of proof had now shifted. And so while it probably would have been upheld either way, Ramirez hit by pitch was invalidated because it was inconclusive. And so it was, what do they call that? It stands. It wasn't overturned. It wasn't upheld. It stands. Is that the uh-huh. language? So this was this would go down as a the call stands because it, it couldn't be uh, concluded one way or the other. And so Francona loses his, his review. And my very small fix is that if the conclusion is stands, that, that if the conclusion is that it is too close to overturn, or to confirm that we can't tell that you don't, you shouldn't lose your review. Because Francona, I mean, what what's he supposed to do? If you see a camera angle that says this is that like if your camera guy, if your guy in the in the in the TVs says, we got an angle here that shows it hit him. This is this one, you gotta you gotta challenge it. It's gonna get overturned. Mm-hmm. And then the another guy in New York's like, yeah, I see that, but it's not conclusive. I've gotta let it stand. Like, what's Francona supposed to do now? Is he not supposed to use his reviews because there's a chance that somebody else will not find it as definitive as the actual image in front of our eyes tells us to? It feels really weird to then to penalize the manager of that team for doing a call when he was probably right, or at least he was as, you're not saying he's wrong. Nobody's saying he's wrong. Nobody is like (laughs) able to prove that Francona shouldn't have called for that review. It's like the the challenge stands because you can't prove that the challenge was incorrect. Exactly. You can't, thank you, Ben. You cannot prove that the challenge was incorrect. So you can't take it away from him. He gets it back. Yeah. I, I agree with that. Although, how often do, te- do teams actually run out of challenges anyway? Does, <laughs> have you ever seen that happen? Uh, I mean, I, I, well, would we know? I guess we wouldn't necessarily you, know because if know. you run out, they I, would challenge. A couple but. days ago, I saw a team lose their challenge early and then couldn't use it later. And yeah, we didn't know why they didn't. I mean, we, we didn't yeah. know if they would have, but it was a play that I thought, oh, are they going to... Re- oh, it's a commercial. Like, <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah. It just moves on. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. I feel like I don't hear teams say that that often like oh yeah we would have challenged that but we had already challenged maybe they just don't want to call attention to their incorrect challenges i don't know but that must happen from time to time anyway i agree let's amend the rule okay okay 
So this is ostensibly an email show, but I've got to be honest, I've only got like three emails that really moved me right now. So I think we have a a little time and I just wanted to ask you about Carter Stewart and whether you had any thoughts on that situation, because I think it's it's an interesting one. And I've been trying to decide whether it is, well, it is precedent setting, clearly, but I'm trying to decide whether... Other people will follow him, whether he will be a trailblazer or whether it's more of a singular situation. For those who don't know, Carter Stewart was, what, the eighth overall pick last year by the Braves, and he didn't end up signing because there was uh, an exam and a test that revealed an injury, a, a wrist weakness, and so the offer was reduced and he didn't take it. So he's draft eligible again. But he hadn't pitched as well, and he has this injury concern lingering, and scouts had said that maybe he was favoring the wrist, and so it looked like he was possibly a first-round candidate, but maybe a second-round candidate wasn't going to be a a top-of-the-draft type, so... Instead of going back into the draft this year, Scott Boris, who's his advisor, I guess you would call it, has opened another loophole of sorts, a classic Boris loophole, and has had him sign with an NPB team. So he's now going over to Japan, and he got guaranteed money for this decision. He got, uh, what, $7 million over the next six years. So normally if you are drafted by a Japanese team or signed by a Japanese team, you can't get posted for, I think, 10 years. So he's got a, a shorter period there so he could qualify for free agency and be posted again when he's 25. So worst case, he has made himself quite a bit of money, probably more than he would have made in the draft this year. And, well, definitely more than he would have made in the draft this year. And then, best case, he goes over there and pitches well and is healthy and can come back at an age when he could also make a lot of money. So the question is, is this going to be a path that other players take or threaten to take, possibly as soon as a couple weeks from now when the draft starts? Or... Is this sort of a Carter Stewart singular situation because he had this injury and he was willing to do this and other players might not be? Yeah, well, and uh, other players, I don't know, other players might not be able to get $7 million as mm-hmm. 19-year-olds. I don't know what the market would would be if for, let's say, second-round picks or third-round picks. I, I don't know. But, I mean, this seems like it's almost hard to believe that this was just out there in front of us and that we weren't talking about it all the time it is like undeniably great for him right he is yeah in the you said you you said worst case best case worst case he makes a lot more money best case he makes a ton more money (laughs) yeah if he's bad he's got seven million dollars guaranteed whereas whatever team drafted him if he's bad uh would probably guarantee he'd make double a but not any further than that and if he's good he's gonna hit free agency at 25 i mean like that's like that's like the dream right there he basically has one year you know if you do a best case outlook for this there's basically one year where he's got a little extra risk because he would have been maybe in his first year of arbitration at 24 or 25. And so instead of getting that like $5 million payday that year, he'll have to make it healthy to free agency. So there's like that tiny little bit of risk. Otherwise, though, either way his career goes, he ends up making more money than he would have. Um, And so you wonder, like, I guess it wouldn't make sense for a college player necessarily uh would it because a college player is going to make the majors 
if, if things work out, is going to make the majors quicker. Yeah. And so maybe it doesn't work as well for a college player. And maybe you've got to take into account the player development issues here. It might be better for him to be, uh, you know, pitching in, in a ball under mm-hmm. the uh, tutelage of a bunch of really extremely good coaches who only care about making sure he's good four years from now. I mean, this comes up with college players too, in fact, of the question of whether it's better to be in a minor league farm system rather than pitching for a college coach who's trying to win ball games. Obviously, pitching in Japan is different than that because I assume that you get a lot better player development attention than you would at college where there's only a couple of coaches um but you've still got incentives that don't necessarily favor your long-term outlook the same way that it does when you're uh in a team's farm system but i mean the money difference is like overwhelming i i know that yeah. um jeff passon wrote about this and he mentioned that scott boris has has mentioned this idea in the past and so i it wasn't invented this week uh, and so i guess people were talking about it but i'm kind of surprised we don't talk about it every june and say is this mm-hmm. the year that six guys jump yeah Well, so a few things. I mean, I think that there are colleges that are doing a really good job of player development these days, especially Mm -hmm. the big schools, and in some cases, probably better than even some major league organizations are doing in the minors. So there's that. There are a lot of cutting-edge colleges out there. And then I guess you have to be good enough to attract an NPP team and, and convince an NPP team to pay you this much money. Normally, Japanese teams are signing either like quadruple A guys who've gotten stuck in triple A for a while, and maybe they have a skill set that would work better over there, and they're sick of bouncing around triple A, and so they go over there and they play at the highest level league in the country and they make more money. Or sometimes it's someone who's been in the big leagues and has washed out your fearbender Chris Carter type, although I know neither of those actually went to Japan. But that kind of player who just sort of runs out of rope in the majors and goes over there to make more money. So if you're a draftee, like if you're a top of the draft talent, if your top priority is just making the majors, then you're not even going to consider this, although you could perhaps use it as leverage. But you're top priority is going to be making the majors. You're going to want to get into the minor league system and move as quickly as you can. So a certain number of guys just aren't going to want to transplant themselves and aren't going to want to possibly delay their major league debut. So you have to be not good enough to be like a top of the first round pick guaranteed, but you also have to be good enough that a Japanese team would be willing to pay you this much money. So I don't know how many guys fit into that category every year. Probably not a a huge number. It's not like a guy who's in the draft is just going to go right over to Japan and start dominating in NPB. Like that's high level baseball. That's like maybe the highest level league in the world other than the majors. It's, you know, between AAA and major league quality. So you're not going to go straight there and be good. You have to play in the Japanese minors for a while and, they can still have some pretty, you know, disciplinarian tendencies over there from what I understand, although maybe that's changing. But it's not a cakewalk. It's not like you go over there and, and you're just a, a star instantly. You still have to work your way up. So I don't know how many guys fit this description every year, but I think it's really cool that Boris finds these things every now and then. It's been a while since his last loophole that I can recall. Lately, he's just kind of he keeps coming up with like weird names for contract structures and swell ups and all kinds of complex contracts that are not as fun. 
But he has a a history, of course, of finding this type of loophole. And I'll link to it. Kevin Goldstein wrote a a great article about this in 2008, just sort of recounting all the times that Boris found these ways to get his guys more money. And then those loopholes were closed. So it's very possible also that this won't be viable for very long for one reason or another. Yeah. I mean, it all comes down to how many guys there are that could get $7 million guaranteed. Um, yeah, because it makes a lot less sense probably for two million dollars mm-hmm. if you're, you know, even if you're a guy who's going to, you know, sign for 400 or 600,000 as a bonus, then then you really start thinking, well, do I want to you know, for all the reasons that you might not want to do it? Do I want to make make the major league teams mad at me? Do I want to uh, live outside my comfort zone? Maybe you do. I would. But maybe you don't. Do I want to like postpone my chance to collect major league stats, which yeah. is a pretty big thing if you're thinking about your career and your legacy? I mean, that that is the one thing where like the the truly best case scenario here is that you know he could have been 21 and a phenom and winning 14 games every year until he's 25 um and then when he's 39 he's got a hall of fame resume and now he will not debut uh, in the majors before he's 26 or 25 or whatever Mm -hmm. wherever his birthday falls there and um it's hard to make the hall of fame if you debut in the majors at 26 it's darn near impossible and that's not nothing right the the otani by the way the otani the otani precedent makes this kind of interesting too because otani is a guy who said that he would take a lot 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 less money to play in the best league and so then we had this hypothetical i think it was actually about robinson cano which is how much would a team have how much would some foreign billionaire have to pay Robinson Cano to pay for like their like Dutch national team or something Mm -hmm. or whatever. And we said, well, you know, if you have money like Robinson Cano does, uh, you probably right now what would drive you much more than that is playing against the best players in the world and playing at the highest level. And so it would have to be like billions. And Otani kind of proved that, that when he had the chance, he turned down like hundreds of millions of dollars potentially, so that he could play with Mike Trout and against Justin Verlander right now. And so I don't know how much that factors into this for the average second or third round draft pick who still has an uphill climb to get to the majors and who isn't probably going to be a Hall of Famer. But the dream is there. And these are certainly all players who've grown up thinking who've grown up being the best playing against the best and probably want to continue to play against the best and so it, it might for that reason be unappealing in mm-hmm. a lot of cases some some cases the, yeah. even though even though we're talking about the second best so what do you think it's better would it be better for baseball as a ecosystem if like you had two semi-equal leagues on different sides of the world or do you think it's better for baseball as an ecosystem to make sure that all the best players in the world you know the very 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 top players in the world compete against each other you know all the time i think it's probably better for fans to have them all in one place maybe i'm wrong maybe that's like some ethnocentric perspective i'm not sure but it would probably be better for players to have two viable competing leagues obviously right there's precedent for that with Mm -hmm. mexican league and other upstart major leagues that tried to compete and poached players and gave them big raises and then they were able to use that as leverage and 
that's why this story is so interesting. It's uh, we'll be watching his career with great interest, as Emperor Palpatine said, just because this is kind of how you make money in the draft, which is a, a system that's set up to be restrictive and suppress salaries and does that very well because you don't have choice. You can either play for the team that drafts you or you can not play at that level. And when you do get a choice, when it's Kyler Murray, which that was a unique case too, but that was one, and now Carter Stewart is one, as soon as you have another option out there, it really raises your earning power exponentially. So you know that MLB has got to be displeased about this development and will do whatever it can to prevent this from happening in the future. Of course, if they paid minor leaguers more, that might help, and there'd be less incentive to go elsewhere, or if players could collectively bargain earlier free agency but maybe they'll just make a rule against it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know I like I like the idea of having two co-equal leagues because I'm all about dilution right now. I want to dilute the talent pool. I want to spread them out, so... Yeah. Okay. By the way, Chris Carter is leading the Mexican league. I just looked at the Fangraphs minor league leaderboard. He has a 198 WRC plus. That is tops in the league and number two in the league. Felix P.A., our old friend Felix P.A. at the age of 34, has a 188 WRC plus in the Mexican League, and he hasn't been in the big league since 2013. I, I once uh, wrote about somebody who had a crazy line in the Mexican League, and I looked at his team—how was I able to do this? It must have been like a five-year-old line or something like that, because I looked at everybody on his team, and not one of them ever played again in the majors. Mm-hmm. So there is, it is fun to look at Mexican league stats, but it's a kind of a, it tends to be a more of a one-way uh, direction when you're talking about yeah. the older guys. It's not quite, like, I don't know if it's, if it works the same way that like the Atlantic league works where you, you know, go there as a veteran to, you know, get some swings and get looked at and hopefully signed again by some team. I don't get the feeling that there's a lot of veterans getting signed out of the Mexican league, but I could yeah. be wrong. Well, it's it's been harder to do that historically, right? Just the player movement between those leagues because there are various restrictions and agreements and you, you can't always do that. And I guess Chris Carter had to become a Mexican citizen, evidently, to, to play there unless he just decided to do that because he wanted to anyway. I don't know. But I think it's a, a little harder to move both ways. Actually, I think Jeff Passan reported last year that MLB had banned transactions with the Mexican League because of corruption and fraud. So yeah, you're right. I just like it when guys disappear off the major league radar and you just assume they're gone and then you find out years later that no they're not gone they're the best player in a really high level league and they're probably having a heck of a time oh i think they do have a heck of a time too because that's the thing is the like whenever you see one of these incredible stat lines from a guy that you remember from a long time ago it's usually like his sixth year playing there and he's just he just likes it you can tell that he likes it yeah You'd just be the best player. It's like Superman coming from Krypton to Earth and suddenly he's like the same guy, but he's Superman. It's kind of like that when you go from the big leagues to the Mexican leagues. So why would you not enjoy that feeling? Not having to worry about your roster spot every day, just destroying the league, just being the Mike Trout of an also really high level league, just not the highest level league. It sounds like great fun. Ben. Yeah. Ruben Rivera's still playing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's still this is the guy I was thinking of. Yeah. He's he's been playing in the Mexican League since two thousand six. <laughs> two thousand five, two thousand four. He's been playing in the Mexican League since two thousand four. 
He's now 45 years old. And last year, as a 44-year-old, playing for Monclava, which is, isn't yeah. that what Chris Carter's same team is Chris Carter, right? Carter? Is that the Aceros? He's with the Aceros. Last year, he hit 253, 413, 396. So he had an 810 OPS, 413 on base percentage. He's basically like Bobby Abreu, like over there at age 45. So for him, I, I got to, I, we got to make a trip down there. Yeah. That'd be fun. Number two overall prospect in baseball, according to Baseball America, in 1995. Isn't this, right. Well, and isn't the story that he's basically why the Yankees got Mariano? Because they were cousins, and he's like, hey, you should sign my cousin. And they yeah. wanted to. Uh, yeah. yeah, I don't think Ruben was a, a huge profile signing. But yeah, he was a big prospect. But anyway, I think that they wanted Ruben, and, and he's like, you should sign my cousin too. And uh-huh. then two years later, he was the <laughs> number two prospect in baseball. And then two years after that, his cousin was a Hall of Famer. Yep. A lot of longevity and Hall of Fame career, and Ruben is still playing, and Mariano's done. Although I'm sure if Mariano wanted to, he could go down and dominate the Mexican League for a while. What a great bottomless baseball reference page he has, too. 28 professional seasons, often with multiple stops per season. You just keep scrolling down, and the career continues. Man, what a good career this is. This is a great <laughs> career when you... So he's now played, well, 1,522 games. He's got... 6,500 plate appearances. In the Mexican League? In the Mexican League. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. I'm going to look up real quick who had 6,500 plate appearances in the majors. I mean, it's a lot. It's it's 10 full seasons. That that would get you on the Hall of Fame ballot if you had Mm -hmm. that. I mean, easily. So let's see. Uh, 60... I don't know why I'm doing this. <laughs> like this number, it's not like anybody needs help putting the number 6,000 in perspective. How many is that, Sam? Uh, it's it's as many as J.J. Hardy had. Is that oh, a good? Daryl yeah. Strawberry. It's as, oh, it's, okay. He's had. He's the Daryl Strawberry of, of the Mexican League. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's answer a few emails here. You had a a replay banter, so here's a replay question. This is from Jennifer. She says, I don't know why I never thought of this question before, but why can't the StatCast tracking system be used for instant replay, at least on things like fair foul? If it tracks objects on the field well enough to show the routes taken by fielders and the trajectory of home runs, why does it not track the ball well enough to determine fair or foul? Of course, it might miss a play or two, but shouldn't it generally work? Why do we rely on TV cameras, which sometimes have terrible angles? Further, why don't they just install TV cameras down both lines in every park? So this sounds like an excellent suggestion, but I don't think it's a workable one yet. My understanding of StatCast and batted balls is that it doesn't exactly track the full trajectory of the ball. It tracks the initial trajectory and then extrapolates from there. And so it's not perfectly accurate, and I don't think it's up to the task of, say, projecting whether a ball will be fair or foul once it's down the the left field line or something, and you have to decide whether it hit the chalk or didn't hit the chalk. I don't think it has that level of precision with projecting batting balls. So that's one problem. And then the other thing is if there's like a super high fly ball that goes over the foul pole, I think... Very often that would not be tracked. You would not be able to tell whether that was fair or foul at that point. So I don't think the technology is currently up to this task, or I don't think it would be an improvement over even the current TV cameras, let alone optimally positioned TV cameras. 
Yeah, I wonder how consistent the foul line is drawn. I wonder if if you have an inch of variation from mm. game to game, or if it because yeah. because it, it could be a problem. Like, sure, you can put track the ball in space, but the foul line ha- has no concern for your radar. Like mm-hmm. it can it can go wherever it wants. And I don't know if they're perfectly consistent. Do you think it's perfectly consistent? What do you think the variation <laughs> is from game to game on the foul line? I would guess it's pretty consistent but obviously it's going to be like millimeters off or something but i would think that's pretty close but of course the the statcast system has calibration issues from park to park and so it wouldn't measure that exactly the same at all times in every park but next year there will be this new optical tracking system the the hawkeye system that people know from tennis and that supposedly will be even more accurate so Perhaps when that is installed and is being used as the primary system, maybe that would be up to the task because that system will be able to measure like limb movements, which is interesting because right now it's like center of mass with players' bodies. So you can't use StatCast, for instance, to see if someone slid in in front of a tag or or to look at the mechanics of a, a pitcher's delivery or batter swing or something. And with Hawkeye, you might be able to do that. So maybe you could also do fair foul. I don't know. Maybe we'll see umpires on headsets talking to Tom Tango and Darren Wilman to ask them where StatCast said the ball went. But there aren't that many cases where you can't tell based on the camera. No, certainly not many cases that you can't tell that aren't within the, you know, two or three inches that you would expect the system to be unable of unable to do. Now, I will say this, though, which uh, this may be, I don't know if StatCast would be the answer. It wouldn't seem to me the the intuitively easiest answer, but my my feeling, my sense is that the play that is most miscalled or that is the hardest to call and that, in my opinion, is most miscalled in baseball, uh, not counting ball strike stuff, is the ground ball right over the bag. Uh-huh. I feel like there's uh, nobody's got a good look on that. Even the cameras don't really usually give you a good look. They're not reviewable, uh, which is like, I don't quite get. That seems like a weird one to say we're not reviewing this one, but maybe it's because there's no good camera angle on it. Um, but I feel like like I'm in constant disagreement with, with that call, with that call of right over the bag. Um, mm-hmm. And it does seem like you could do something about that, it, but I'm not sure why what, what you do. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to put a pole in the bag with a camera looking straight down. I mean, you'd have to you'd have to somehow be looking straight down on the bag, right? Yeah, so it's like probably. straight down. Mm-hmm. So maybe Statcast could do that because that's that, possible. It's, like yeah. we do know what we do know where the bag is every game. Like I, I know that mm-hmm. there's no variation on where the bag is, and uh, and uh, that's a great that's a great place where it can tell you where it is in space at yeah. any given second and can probably do better than I, I don't know maybe not but it seems like it could probably do better than the umpire who's trying to guess not guess but intuit mm-hmm. where the ball in the air that's moving laterally across an object that the umpire is not standing at that's a hard call yeah well you're full of good fixes for instant replay tonight yeah i brought them i hope mlb is listening all right do you have a stat blast yeah i do all right let's do it We'll take a data set sorted by something like ERA-minus or OBS-plus And then they'll tease out some interesting tidbit, discuss it at length, and analyze it for us in amazing ways Here's today's Stop Blast 
a classic example of a stat blast that is not going to teach you anything new. It is merely going to put into perspective something that you already know. What that that thing is that that strikeouts are up. Um, <laughs> and so th this stat blast came up because I was watching a game the other day, or actually I was looking at the box score of a game, I should say, the other day between the Astros and the Red Sox, and the Astros pitchers walked more batters than they struck out and the Red Sox pitchers also walked more batters than they struck out and I thought that that's for both of these staffs I bet that's pretty rare and I wondered how rare and so I'm just going to this is what the stat blast is I went and looked at what the record is for the this is not a record what we're calling it a record the record for the fewest games in a season by a team pitching staff walking more batters than they struck out. Uh -huh. So I'm going to just start by telling you that in 1926, the St. Louis Browns walked more than they struck out 112 times uh, out of 154 games. So that's how baseball used to be. And now yep. it's not like that. And so I'm going to track this. And the way I'm going to track it is I'm going to tell you the progression of this fake record that I just made up. So in 1920, the record for the fewest games where a team walked more batters than they struck out was Brooklyn uh, with 33. So 33 games they walked more than they struck out. And that was not only the best in the league, it was the best in history. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I started this search in 1920. So it was actually the best that year. It was the same thing. But that record managed to hold on for... 20 years. No team for 20 years did this fewer times. And so then in 1940, Brooklyn again did had only 28 such games. So for, for 20 years, no team did fewer than 33. So then Brooklyn does 28. And that record stands for almost 20 years. And then in 1957, the strikeout to walk ratios really started to change a little bit. Philadelphia had 17 such games, new record. So the record is kind of weirdly going down in, in big big leaps. So 33 to 28 and now to 17. And then in 1961, it went down to 15. And then in 1962, it went down to 14. And then in 1965, it went from 14 to seven. <laughs> and then that record held on for 36 years. And then the 2001 Yankees only had six times. And then that record held on for 11 years. And then the 2012 Phillies only did it two times so six to two and actually one of our first episodes maybe one of our first five or so episodes was i think about the phillies team strikeout to walk rate and um what do you know huh. that year is 2012 if you don't remember yeah and so then that record held until last year when a team had only one of these games and that team was the houston astros mm. and so sure enough it was very rare and in fact the red sox only had two last year so between them, they only had three all season in 2018, but then they did it against each other. By the way, the Dodgers also only had one last year. So they, they tied the record with the Astros. So the record is currently one. There's only, there's only one other place that that record could possibly go, and it is to zero. Yes. Um, the Astros will not do it this year, and the Red Sox will not do it this year. They each knocked each other out of the race. But there are three teams that currently have none of these games the Rays, the Dodgers, and the Pirates in 2019, mm -hmm. none of them have had a game where they walked more batters than they struck out. So we could see um, this record, a century in the making, from 33 down to zero. And I will just note one last thing, which is that the, this year, teams that have done this 
what would you guess their winning percentage is? Oh, 320. It's 170. So you're really bad if you're doing this. And we know that. We know how it works. But even in 1920, when there were so many... uh, Hang on, I'm going to do a little math. In the 1920s, one out of every five games, a little bit more than one out of every five, really about every four games, a team did this. So it was very common. And even then, teams that did this were really bad. They were horrible. And so it was all right there. Like, even then, they should have been like, seems like these strikeouts are helping us. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Because whenever we walk more than we strike out, we lose. Yeah. (laughs) But they just kept doing it. They did it a long time, and now they don't. Yeah. They stopped. Well, it was hard to do then. Anyway, Rays, Pirates, and Dodgers. The Rays and the Dodgers played each other tonight, so I'm going to check. By the way, Cody Bellinger. Mm, yeah, under 400. Under 400, never coming back. It's over. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, that's something to watch. I like it. Weird, effectively wild record that we'll all be paying attention to now. I have sort of a stat blast too. It's really a listener email answer, but it fits into the stat blast category. So this is from Steve, and he says, Tonight the Orioles will use their 49th different lineup in 49 games. Is it possible to tell the most unique lineups in a season and to start the year? What are the chances the Orioles set a new record or even go with 162 different lineups? Oh, ben, before you answer this, yeah. can I just tell you that when I used to cover the Angels, sometimes beat writers are obsessed with this, with, with how they? many lineups. Like they, I may, at least the beat writers that I uh, was around, they were like every time, every season, there'd be like a tally of how many lineups that Sosha had used. <laughs> And I always would be like, Why? I, I, okay. And then I looked one time and it was just normal. Like every yeah. team has 110 lineups. Right. There's yeah. nothing uncommon about using 110 lineups. Yeah. No, not at all. Well, that's uh, that's actually makes this interesting to me because I learned a little bit while I was looking this up with the help of Dan Hirsch of Baseball Reference, who I asked, uh, I didn't even ask him to send me this data. I just said, is this on Baseball Reference? Because I thought maybe there was a page where I could look at this and there wasn't. So he just sent me everything. He sent me all the unique lineups for every team ever. So The interesting thing here, I can tell you right now, is that if the Orioles do have 162 lineups this year, it will not be the first time that's been done. In fact, it won't be the record. The 1965 Mets had 164 (laughs) unique lineups, which uh, is weird because if you look up the 1965 Mets, they went 50-112. That's 162 games. But they had 164 (laughs) lineups because they played two games that were not completed and they had different lineups oh, in get those two out. games. Like they yeah. had suspended games? <laughs> yeah, and with they different got... lineups. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so these, are, these were games that weren't suspended. These were games that were ended in a tie and were remade, were played from scratch? I guess that's what it was. I don't even I think know that's what it how was. They did yeah, it. I guess that might have been it. Yeah, so 164. And it's not a, it's probably not a good thing. I, I didn't look to see what I'd like to do. I didn't get this data from Dan, but it would be perhaps interesting to look at like offense and see if offense is correlated with your number of lineups and whether it's a bad thing to have a lot of lineups. I would guess it's a bad thing, right? If you have 
good hitters, they tend to be cemented in certain spots. So I would think it's a bad thing. And the fact that the Orioles are doing it this year, that would support the idea that it's a bad thing. And the fact that the 1965 Mets did it would support the the fact that it's a bad thing because that was a bad team. On the other hand, it is not always bad. Because, and I'm looking, uh, so I did a comparison, just all NL teams, because this is including pitchers, and it's simpler just to compare NL to NL, and I looked from 1962 to present, uh, just because that's when the NL went to a 162-game season. So just in that time, there have been four other NL teams that had 162 unique lineups. So even that is not really all that unusual. The Dodgers did it last year. And the Dodgers are good. They had 162 lineups in 163 games. Then you had the 2014 Padres did it in 162 games. The 1993 Expos did it in 163 games. And the 2013 Padres, the Padres were doing it every year at that point. They did it in 162 games. So it's been done. It's been done a fair amount. And there are lots of teams with 161 and 160. And it's it's just not that unusual. Now, if I look at AL teams, let's see what the record for AL teams is. The 1966 White Sox had 163 lineups in 163 games. So it's, uh, it's not that unusual. But what is interesting is I looked at the yearly average, again, just for NL teams and just since 1962 to keep things consistent. We're in peak unique lineup era. This is, you're, you've never been more likely to see more unique lineups than we are right now. So last year, I knew it. yeah, the average NL team last year had 154.9 lineups, unique lineups. So, I mean, that's like a, almost a different lineup every day. That's the average NL team. So this is kind of interesting because, uh, You know, like, let's see, I I took out all the strike years because you'd have fewer lineups when you have fewer games. But, like, in 1962, the the first year of the 162-game schedule in the NL, you had 143. It was, like, you know, low 140s, high 130s in that era. And uh, there have been some some lower outlier years, but it's it's definitely up. It's it's up like, you know, 10, 15 unique lineups per season without any increase in the number of games per season. So what's your theory? I, I haven't thought this through, but why would it be? Do you think would it just be maybe guys are getting rested more often? Maybe teams are taking guys out of the lineup more often to, to give them a breather. Maybe lineup spots just are less static than they used to be. Guys just move around more. You're not cemented in a certain lineup spot. I I don't know. Do you have any other ideas for why that would? Or I guess uh, another thing, probably there are more pitchers in the rotation, right? More starters making starts. Pitcher doesn't count. I I think the pitcher does count for Uh, this. Yeah. No, baseball reference does count batting orders for teams. Yeah. Um, And they... Do not include. Pitchers. Yeah, for this, for this, pitchers are included. This is uh, Dan said it was more complicated to remove pitchers. Oh, wow. So, so that makes sense, right? Because they're just more pitchers, probably more pitchers. starting. So that's probably a big part of it, or all of it, 
right there. Actually, no, you know what? It's not all of it, because if I look only at American League teams in the DH era, there's also a sizable increase. The numbers are lower than in the NL, but they're higher relative to what AL lineups used to be. So in 1973, for instance, the average AL team had 111 unique lineups, 113, 108, 111, 112, that range. Last year, 138, a record by quite a bit. That's even though you tend to have smaller benches these days, because bullpens are bigger. So maybe it's partly player movement, because there are so many guys getting optioned and just shuffled back and forth between AAA and the majors. Mostly pitchers, but hitters too. So you're getting more unique lineups these days. Ben, I'm going to tell you the most painful thing that ever happened in baseball history. Okay. In 1965, the New York Mets were playing the Philadelphia Phillies. Uh-huh. The Mets were 50 and 110. Yeah. The, the Phillies had a better record than that, but they were in sixth place. And this was the final weekend of the season. They were 12 games back. This game did not ma- matter much at all. And the Mets lost the game 6 to nothing, And that was the first game of a doubleheader. <laughs> and so then they played the second game of a doubleheader. And that game was scoreless through 18. And that's when they ended it. And the next day, they started over from scratch. Oh, no. <laughs> and also played a doubleheader that went 13 innings in the nightcap. Oh, so the, they they went they ended up going 50 and 112 because they played all this out they played 49 innings in two days against <laughs> another team meaningless team. baseball imaginable totally meaningless 100 percent meaningless there were 18,000 fans in attendance for that wow. second second day That's pretty good which is pretty good and uh they they put on a show huh Can you imagine playing 18 innings and then saying, we're going to start over from scratch tomorrow as part of a doubleheader? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's it. You found it. That's the saddest thing in baseball history. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Earlier, a couple days earlier, they had a crowd of 2,000. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Well, all right. That's all. I'm I'm so tired. (laughs) I'm so tired. You done? Okay. Yeah. I got one that I've, I've been putting this in my email spreadsheet for like weeks now. Can I can I ask this? All oh, right. It's not long. Yeah. All right. Jeff, Patreon supporter, says last season, one of the many Bartolo Colon highlight videos showed him beating D. Gordon in a race to first base on a grounder to the first baseman. Who are we talking about? Bartolo Colon. Bartolo Colon, yeah. D. Gordon, yeah. Given that we know that an overweight old pitcher can run 60-ish feet faster than a speed demon can run 90-ish feet, do you think we will ever see a full shift against Albert Pujols, or insert slow hitter here, with the pitcher having the responsibility to cover first on any infield grounder? Hmm. I would guess that roughly 100% of MLB pitchers could get to the bag in time to get set and receive the throw, although a pitcher's muscle memory is only set to cover the bag when the ball is hit to the right side. Maybe a lefty who naturally falls toward first anyway at the end of his delivery? Do you think this could happen? No first baseman shift? We did it in slow pitch. Yeah? Yeah, this is what we would do in slow pitch. If we if uh, if you were understaffed, the first thing you'd do is you'd cut out an outfielder. Second thing you'd do is cut out the first baseman and have Lev cover the the bag he was our pitcher uh-huh. it's you'd get you'd just get hurt it'd be too dangerous it's way too dangerous i've i mean i've yeah. i already don't I, we've already talked before i think maybe not but i wrote about my favorite double plays and the ones where the pitcher covers already are so terrifying for me i just do not like watching a pitcher sprint over and try to cover first base so the idea that he's going to sprint over and then turn and get a throw from the third baseman that certainly was thrown before he has turned 
no way. Never. <laughs> not not a chance. Yeah. I mean, it could be done if, if all the conditions were right. I think the clone play does demonstrate that. But yeah, that's, uh, I mean, A, there's an unwritten rules component to it. <laughs> you're You're totally showing the guy up, which as you've noted, teams have very much showed up Pujols by just playing incredibly deep against him. So that's uh, that's bad, but it's not quite the same as just having no first baseman and saying our pitcher will get over there. So I don't know that any team would be quite that insulting <laughs> to do that. I don't think the insult is a factor, to be honest. Um, no. I mean, we're 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 well past that in shifting. Yeah, I mean, what, what? It's no more insulting than having the four guys on the right side for a left-hander, except that in making the you're saying that you're going to shift him so aggressively even though it will quite possibly get your pitcher killed that's how much you <laughs> want to show him up like yeah. and so then you go well wait a minute we should have stopped on get our pitcher killed and you wouldn't do it for that reason i mean really think about it a ground ball down the line the third baseman fields it turns throws the pitcher's 48 feet you know along his his journey to the first base at this point he has to sprint to first base stop on a dime spin around find the ball keep his teeth and he has he he's probably going to be beating the base runner by three feet so there's going to be two runners getting there at the same time as well from different angles it is Mm -hmm. nuts yeah this is a you kept this for three weeks and you didn't think about this (laughs) uh yeah good point good point this probably won't be done all right addendum on the lineup thing because i i think i dismissed steve's premise too quickly here because i was talking about lineups including pitchers and steve is talking about the orioles who do not have pitchers unless they're playing in interleague parks so it actually it would be unprecedented if the Orioles and AL team in the DH era were to use a different lineup every day. That would be something new because the the record for an AL team in can the I DH era. It? Can I guess it? Yeah, 1973 on. Go ahead. Because I think I looked this up and okay. um, I did it the Sam way at the time, which is manually <laughs> clicking data entry and, yeah. manually clicking every team for every year, you which is a that. good way to. You, I do like that. You love just spending an entire day. And just... I want to say it's like 157. <laughs> it is uh, 155. Okay. And that was done by the 1985 California Angels in 162 games and. Last year's Blue Jays did it 154 times. So, so yes, if the Orioles were to have a different lineup every day this year, that would be something new and probably not something to brag about. But I'm guessing they won't get there, but they'll make a run at it. You want, I mean, you don't even think Robinson Cano should run out grounders <laughs> and you want to make your pitcher do this? <laughs> So that you can get an extra six feet of range (laughs) from your first baseman? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, not not fully thought out. Okay. All right. All right. That'll do it. See ya. I always wonder, if you submit an email question, do you never miss another email episode because we might answer that question? Sometimes I answer questions that are weeks, months, even years old. You never know when I'll answer your question. So once you submit one, you're kind of locked in for life. You've got to keep listening just to see if it ever gets answered. Not that you should ever miss an episode anyway, but I'm just saying you got some skin in the game. Sometimes I let people know via email if we answered their question, but not always. You've got to tune in. You can help support this podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com 
Patreon.com slash Effectively Wild, as have the following five listeners who have signed up to pledge some small monthly amount and help keep the podcast going. Nate Mann, Sam Levine, Sam Isaacs, Brian Beyer, and Brandon Kuhn. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild, and you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. Please keep your questions and comments coming via email at podcastandfangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. Please pre-order my book, The MVP Machine, the story of the current revolution in player development in baseball. It comes out on June 4th. It's less than two weeks, people. Running out of pre-order reminders here. I'm sure you're all sorry to hear that. But if you're on the fence, get off the fence on the right side, on the pre-ordering side. Pre-order the book anywhere and send us your receipt or your pre-order confirmation at themvpmachine at gmail.com. Qualify for pre-order bonuses when the book comes out, an extra chapter, a conversation between me and Travis, and more. Can't wait for you all to read it very soon. Your orders are appreciated. So I'll be back with Meg to do another episode later this week. Talk to you then. Yeah.